Okay, the basic doctrines of the uh, Christian church, uh, all denominations basically deal with these same doctrines, doesn't matter what church you go to. Uh, they're basic to all of Christianity, and uh, today's doctrine is the, the biblical doctrine of human nature. What is mankind like, and what is our basic human nature? And one of the things, one of the attributes that's common to all of us, to varying degrees, of course, is pride. And, you know, you've heard the statement, pride goeth before the fall, and so that's one of the basic ingredients of the original sin, is pride. And we all have it, uh, but... There's one great example of the trouble that you get into from being proud, and Ralph Cramden is always the guy. Okay, so the doctrine of human nature. What does the Bible say about the nature of man? Uh, first of all, let's talk. We've been going through all these doctrines, you know, and somebody asked me, well, which one of these is the most important? Which one must I not miss, you know, under any circumstances? And I said, well, the doctrine of Scripture, which was our first one, is the most important because we would not know of the solution to our problem. We wouldn't know anything uh, that, that God's trying to reveal to us without it. But the doctrine of God is the most important because he's the source of everything. We've got to know about him. But on the other hand, the doctrine of Christ is the most important because without Christ's life, death, and resurrection, there would be no basis and means for us to be saved. And the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is most important because it's the basis of our spiritual life. We, we have to have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, so today, now, the, the doctrine of the nature of man is the most important because unless we know who we are and what our great need is, why we were made, uh, we can't be saved. So you kind of you see what I'm saying here? They're all important. They're all a must-know, must-understand uh, doctrines that we're going through here. Uh, and the purpose of our study uh, we're looking at today is distinguishing God's original creation of man as, a, as perfect in his image, just like he wanted us to be. In the Garden of Eden, everything worked, everything was right. Uh, distinguish that person, that original Adam, from who we became uh, after the fall. So, uh, the, the mankind that we know now, that we are now, is different from that original man that God originally created. Uh, people uh, like to blame that on God. They got to say, well, why does God allow evil? Or why did God create evil? Or, you know, some other question that tries to put it all on God. Well, obviously, the Bible puts the blame on mankind. Mankind was disobedient. Uh, God uh, set... Uh, just a few simple commands, and mankind, uh, represented by Adam, disobeyed. And God said, if you disobey, you will surely die. And the essence of that death that he was talking about is separation from God. Separation from God. And that's what human race has experienced ever since that disobedience. Is, is God distancing himself from us because of our sin? And so we're, we're looking at the way we were supposed to be versus who we are now and how we can return to being that person, that, that human race that God originally created us to be. And, of course, the only way has been provided by God, which is in Christ, in that relationship with Christ, we can uh, go back to, we will be redeemed to that original man that God, that original person that God created. And... 
this is uh, this study. It also has to do with the uh, the the doctrine of who we are, our quest for our identity. Who are we trying to become? In other words, uh, where did we come from? What happened? And where are we trying to get back to? Uh, another way of saying that is. Uh, how can we be fulfilled, or how can we be the person God wants us to be? How, how can we change the things that are wrong with our life? You know, when I was at Dallas Seminary, uh, in one of the courses, I forgot which one, they made us study all the theories, all the brilliant philosophers. I thought I was going back to seminary to study the Bible. You spend about half your time reading all these things that people wrote. And one of the things we had to study was all these different philosophers and what they said about the human race, and so uh, I had to get all these huge books and read all this stuff, and the interesting thing that I found was that each one of them agreed that there's a huge problem, <laughs> that all is not right with the human race. You know, they, they would look and they would see all the wars and all the trouble and all the unbridled ambition and greed and on and on and on. And they would say, you know, mankind has these huge problems. But where they would disagree is on what caused the problems and what the solution was. And so I was to take each one of these and compare it to the Bible's view of man, what the problem is of mankind, and what the solution is compared to what the Bible says. Just a few of them uh, that, that you're familiar with. Uh, Karl Marx, you're familiar with him because... Uh, the Cold War and our battle with the force of communism. Karl Marx, he said the driving force in human nature is materialism. And so economics is the key. We're all messed up because we're so materialistic and our economic structure is all wrong. If we could just fix that, we'd be in good shape. So he said capitalism is the cause of all evil and the solution is to replace capitalism with a different system. A complete revolution of the economic system is necessary. Abolish private property and establish a classless society. And his vision was uh, from each according to his ability and to each according to his needs. Sounds great, doesn't it? How did that work out? It was a disaster from day one. You know, that deal about from each according to his ability. That means we're all supposed to work and give to people and uh, according to their need. And, of course, all that does is create more people that have need instead of the people that, you know, you absolutely create the very problem you're trying to solve. It's so stupid. But this guy was brilliant and respected, and everybody read this guy. Then there was uh, another one. I'm just going to go through a few. There was dozens of them I had to study. But Freud, another one you're familiar with, uh, Sigmund Freud, right? He said, humanity is driven by forces within the mind. A few basic ones are sexual instincts. And so our sexual desires, our libido is what drives us into all this mess that we're in. Also, uh, basic instincts like self-preservation. But we also have a repression of mental conflicts in our childhood. And that produces all these neurosis, all this mess, you know, that we are uh, as human beings. And the solution is is psychoanalysis therapy. <laughs> How'd that work? 
you know, basically, you go into some guy and you're complaining about your parents, and he says, well, it's all their fault. <laughs> You'll be just fine. That didn't work out too good. Freud, uh, now all the psychiatrists, basically, you go to a psychiatrist now, and he goes, well, let me give you this prescription, you know, and they write you prescription, you know. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then John Paul Sartre, you know, the, the leading uh, philosophy in the 20th century was existentialism. And the great author that wrote about that was John Paul Sartre, this French guy that hung out in coffee shops in, in Paris and did basically nothing but write a bunch of junk. And the whole world said, this guy's brilliant. He's a genius. You know, he's got it all figured out. Sartre said, God does not exist. Therefore, there are no rules. There's no objective values at all. There's no meaning and there's no purpose. It's just what you see. He said, life is absurd. There's no point to it. We simply find ourselves existing and then we freely decide what to do. We are all, listen to this, we are all condemned to be free. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. But he said, that's the problem. Everybody's doing what they want to do based on, you know, whatever situation they find themselves in. And he said, there's no solution. Just blow it off <laughs> and sit in a coffee shop all day <laughs> and argue with people, which is what he did. And then there's Plato. You know, you, you study these great Greek philosophers and everything. And Plato, uh, way back when, uh, I think democracy was just getting started, you know, back in, in Greece. They were the first ones to experiment with them. And he was against it. He said, the problem... Uh, with human nature is freedom. That's the problem. And the problem, the worst reason democracy will fail is because people have the freedom. He says, leaders will always gain power through deception and lies and maintain it by unscrupulous means. Fortunately, that's never happened here. <laughs> so he said, society, the, hum the human beings in society that are put together that way are failed, uh, to, they're doomed to failure. And so the solution, he said, was philosophers who have truth and knowledge and wisdom, they need to rule. <laughs> he said the only people who are qualified to direct society are those with the knowledge and the wisdom to do it. And he says we can design a blueprint for a perfect state if we just give the power to the right people. Of course, that was going to be his decision on who the right people are. And, of course, that didn't work for them either. Uh, none of these things work. As you know, historically, they've all been proven, and none of them work. Well, what's the Christian view? The Christian view is that all these views that, you know, just the ones I went through and dozens of others are originated by man. They're doomed to failure because even when their goals are met, there's still an emptiness. There's still a dissatisfaction in our soul within us. We, we can do whatever we think, you know, is necessary, and then at the end of the day, and you felt that with when you have great successes, you've always thought, you've dreamed of certain, reaching certain goals, ambitions, success, and then when you get there, you go, that's it? You know, that Patty, is it Patty Page that's saying, is that all there is? You know, that's kind of endemic to the human race. Uh, and so the Bible says, 
that man was originated, man was made through a conscious, purposeful act of God. God made us for a reason and a purpose. There is a reason for our existence. Only man alone is capable of having a personal relationship with God. The Bible says that God created us in his image to do that, to have that relationship and, and for him to love us and for us to love him and serve him and glorify him. And, of course, that's what has been distorted in the original sin, in the fall of mankind, in our disobedience. Uh, we can't discover our real meaning and our real purpose because we're out there chasing happiness in other ways. Or oh, if I could just be happy. You know, they do all those polls, what's the number one goal in your life? To be happy. But nobody's happy. How can that be? That's everybody's goal, what everybody wants, but... Nobody finds it. It's elusive because we were created to have this loving relationship with God, and anything outside of that won't work. There will be dissatisfaction. There will be emptiness to it. Um, so God did create us, and we know then, the you know, you ask the questions, who, what, when, where, why, how, all these things. Well, the Bible concentrates on the who question and the why question. The who question in, who created us? God. God created. Everybody wants to know, well, how did he do it? When did he do it? And where? The Bible doesn't even address those things. Just very, very general statements. But it's very clear and very detailed on the who and the why. God created, and he created us for a purpose to serve him and glorify him and have this loving relationship with him. Anything that's outside of that, anything that isn't uh, doing that, without that relationship, we are not fully human. And we ha don't have that satisfaction, that fulfillment that God created us to have. And so purpose, our purpose, the reason we're here, and our meaning is very much wrapped up in that creation account. And you can read it there in Genesis chapter 1, after God created us. Uh, it, you have what you, theologians call the dominion mandate. God says, I want you to, to represent me. I want you to rule over the creation and fill the whole earth, multiply in the whole earth, and rule over the whole creation for me. You work for me. You serve me. And we will have a loving relationship within this uh, servitude, within this relationship. And so uh, people ask, well, oh, so you actually think Adam and Eve are real historical people? The answer is, yeah. Uh, I know a lot of theologians don't believe that. They, they think they're kind of a uh, metaphor, you know, kind of like the prodigal son is a great metaphor for the human race, and Adam and Eve are like that too. And to that I would say, that's fine, whatever works for you. It's, I think... Uh, the, the point of it is still the same, uh, that, that we can't miss in the story, that uh, God made us in his image, and he has expectations that we would have this loving relationship with him. And in that, within that relationship, there would be uh, meaning and purpose and fulfillment, uh, etc. So uh, when you look at the Bible's view of that that idea of being made in the image of God, it's, we, have, we alone in the, in the 
creation have cognitive reasoning. We, we can plan and we can make decisions and uh, we can have a higher communication that we need to relate with God, to communicate with God that animals don't have. Uh, but the second part of being in the image of God is relational. We're relational beings. We experience a loving relationship with, with each other and with God. You know, when they ask Jesus what's the most important commandment, what do he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, one like it is your neighbors yourself. So that image of God has to do with relational relationships with him and with the, uh, people. And so we were made to, to have those relationships. And image is also functional. Uh, we were created uh, to, to function, to, to do something. And so we're told that God gave us that function to rule over the, the creation for him as his uh, mediator, you might say, his agent. Uh, and Jesus, as I said, put an emphasis on that relational aspect. He told his disciples, uh, you know, in the upper room, he said, I give you a very important commandment, a new commandment, uh, love each other as I have loved you. you. You have a relationship now within the church and, and with other people that's based on your, your love for God. Jesus said, you love me, so I want you to take my love, and I love you, and I want you to take my love and pass it on to transfer it to other people. And that's who we are, and that's uh, what we're commanded to do and what we're meant to do. And, that, and in that is fulfillment and happiness that everyone's looking at. So the other side of the coin is that, uh, that in the original sin, in the fall of mankind, of course, that we read about there in Genesis chapter 3, uh, that theologians call, you know, the doctrine of original sin or uh, total depravity, whatever you want to call it. We see that it's not just that one sin, but the Bible is clear that we were all affected by that one sin. So that when Adam and Eve were separated from God, you know, that's the essence of death, is that separation from God, it transferred, the whole human race became separated from God. So it wasn't just them, but they began it, and the whole human race also was separated from God. That's, that's the doctrine of original sin or total depravity. It, it affected all of us, okay? So in that separation, now God still loves us, but we have an alienation or a separ separation from him. And so God, uh, out of love, he did what? First thing he did was the Genesis 3, the curse upon the creation. And by that, uh, Paul says it great in Romans 8, uh, verse 19, I think. He says, out of love, God, uh, he brought futility to the world. He subjected the world to futility. And by that, that he means... He, he would not allow us to find happiness, would not allow us to find fulfillment, satisfaction, outside of that relationship we were created to have. And so Adam and Eve says, well, we'll just go out here and we'll do whatever we want to do when we want to do it. We'll run our own lives. And God basically set it up so that that wouldn't work. He knew that it was in their best interest that they return to that relationship with him. Because see, we... 
when I first heard that, you know, that, that God, you know, condemned the world or he, or he cursed the world or, as Paul said, he doomed it to futility, subjected it to futility, I thought, well, why would he do a horrible thing like that? But Paul goes on to say he did it out of love because he knows it's our best interest to be returned to that relationship, to be brought back and subjecting the, the whole world, the whole created order like that to futility. God said, this is within my plan to redeem my, mankind. And when you think about it, it works because if, if we really could be fulfilled apart from God, then it would have happened. But as all those philosophers I named, as every one of them said, there is something really bad with the human race. When you got 6,000 years of war and nobody can get along, you know, and everybody's mad, then something's wrong, right? There's no more empirical evidence for any fact ever or anywhere than that, that the human race has got a major problem. There's something wrong with the human race. And God, knowing that was caused by this separation, has subjected the whole creation to futility in order to bring them back. And then the second thing God has done out of love to overcome that, of course, is to provide the, the means and the basis for us to be bought, to be redeemed, to be returned, for that alienation to end and for us to come back into that loving relationship. So he sent Jesus in the world, into the world to accomplish that. And what he did on the cross, his atoning work on the cross, has accomplished that for all who will receive it, for all who will believe in it and make it part of their life. And so God has acted out of love and overcome that original sin, overcome that alienation, uh, that distance that we have. And people say, well, you know, I don't know about that. The human race seems really pretty good to me. I mean, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm fine. How do you really know that this thing about original sin and, and that what Adam and Eve did really affected all of us and that we're all alienated from God? And I said, well, first of all, I can think of three ways. Number one, Scripture says it. Number two, experience reveals it. And number three, and this one's really... Uh, a difficult one to argue against, death. <laughs> Ultimately, we die, and we weren't created to die, see? I mean, who can say, you know, the statistics on death are, are really impressive, <laughs> right? And so Scripture says it, you know, like Romans 3.23 to me is the clearest. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That says it all. Very simply says it all. We've all sinned, but also in, a, in, in just a state of being, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the word he uses there in, in Greek is awesome. It's a word, it's hamartia, which is an archery term, believe it or not. And it means literally, you know, you're shooting at a target with an arrow and you miss it. So God has put a bullseye there, which is his righteous holy standard. Think of the Ten Commandments. And everyone in the human race, all together, we've missed it. And you know what we, what we tend to do when we say, oh, we're fine, we're doing great. You know what you've really done? You've gone painted, a, you, you shot an arrow and then painted a bullseye where it landed. 
I hit it. Look at that, I'm dead center. You know, so people live and do and go uh, however, whenever, wherever, and then they go, everything's great. But the Bible says something opposite. And of course, experience reveals it too. Um, <laughs> the empirical evidence, you know, you, I saw uh, years ago, I saw a 2020 TV show, you know, where they'd done all these studies about human nature, and they were trying to discover in this study if people would lie, if everyone would lie, or what the percentage of people would be that would lie. And so they had this uh, controlled experiment, and they brought 5,000 subjects in of all ages, all genders, all races, rich and poor, everything. And what they would do is they put pressure on them to avoid pain, and then they'd also put something out there uh, as a reward. So if, if they lied, they avoid pain, and they would get something in return. And they actually thought they were there to do something else, and so they were all tricked. That's the way you do these psychological experiments. Well, guess how many people out of 5,000 lied? All of them. Every single person. And the thing that really shocked them, guess which age group... They started with the five and six-year-olds in one group and then progress up the scale of people in different ages. Guess which age group found it the easiest to lie and did it the quickest? No, the five and six-year-olds. The five and six-year-olds. What does that tell you? You are by nature a liar. Your parents have to discipline you and train you not to lie. Right? Or has anybody else not had teenagers? <laughs> so lying, you know, that comes natural. Telling the truth has to be taught. We know that from experience. We don't want to admit it. We'd like it to be the other way. We'd like people to be good. Everything's great. Everything's going to be okay. But it's simply not true by experience. We know that we're all... And, and the Bible says it, and not only that, you look at the representative people in the Bible, all the stories in the Bible, they are, they're all sinners. And, and how, do they, how do they rationalize it? They, they all got excuses and put it on somebody else. From the very beginning, God said to Adam, what did you do? And he said, the woman taught me, the woman you gave me. She did it. I mean, go read the story, it's unbelievable. Nothing's changed, right? <laughs> Cain, where is Abel? The very next chapter, the two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain, where is Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for that guy? Abraham, I told you to go to Canaan. What are you doing in Egypt? Well, we were hungry and there wasn't enough food there. And Well, why did you lie about your wife? Well, you know, I was trying to protect myself. Well, what about her? <laughs> You sold her for a herd of goats. <laughs> Jacob, why did you deceive and lie to your father and your brother? And he said, well, Dad liked my brother best. <laughs> You've heard that one. The sons of Jacob, why did you sell your brother Joseph into slavery? Well, he was boasting that he was going to rule over us. We couldn't let him get away with that. Saul, why did you disobey? Well, you know, the king saw, he said, well, Samuel was late, 
And I was in a hurry. David, why did you commit adultery? Well, I was lonely, and I was bored, and I was middle-aged crazy. Solomon, why did you have a thousand wives? I told you you couldn't do that. Well, you know, I was making peace treaties, and so, you know, it really worked great to marry all these different kings' daughters. Elijah, what are you doing alone in this cave crying? Well, Jezebel sent these tough guys to kill me, and that just didn't write. I, John the Baptist, why are you doubting Jesus? I'm in prison, and I might get killed. That's why. Peter, why have you denied Jesus? Well, Jesus hurt my feelings, and then these people threatened me. <laughs> Saul, what are you, why are you arresting and killing Christians? Well, they're a threat to my traditions, my position, my power, my money. Now, are any of us better than Jacob and David and Solomon and Elijah and John the Baptist, Peter, Paul? No. No. We do the same things. That's who we are as well. You know, I, I love the... Another, you, you look at so many things that talk about the empirical evidence. How about the uh, infomercials? I actually ran into a guy that uh, did infomercials, and he, he was, you know, he was defending. I said, all those infomercials are lies, man. How can you do that for a living? How can you? And he goes, well, you know, we live in a buyer beware world. And it's a buyer beware economy. And if you've ever seen those infomercials, I mean, they're priceless. My uh, stepmother used to buy all those exercise equipment. You'd go over there and see all this stuff laying around. You know, she didn't use any of it. My favorite was the six-second abs. It had a picture of this beautiful model with this flat, muscular stomach, you know. And it said, if you can count to six, you can have a flat stomach with washboard abs in six seconds. Oh, Sure. And then she also had something called the bun and thigh roller. And it's just a wheel, a little wheel with a pad, <laughs> and you rock back and forth. And it says on the, on the package, I lost 30 pounds in eight days. Uh, and then, you know, another favorite, you've probably seen these before. They have a video of a guy hitting golf balls. I mean, he's the biggest duffer you've ever seen. He's topping it, sculling it, shaking it. And it says something like, you know, I was embarrassed to play with my friends. And then they hand him this golf club. And then I found the big boomer. <laughs> it's this long club with his head about that big. <laughs> And all of a sudden, they show this guy hitting, and he's got this beautiful, graceful swing now. And he's just crushing these balls. And the guy says, I added 60 yards to my drives and dropped my handicap down to a scratch with a big boomer. Yeah, we've all tried to buy a golf game, haven't we? That doesn't work. So total depravity is real in Scripture. It's real in experience uh, as well. What it does not mean uh, is that we are as bad as we can be. That doesn't mean that. It just means that we're, we are all together in the sense that we are separated from God and that we need to be redeemed. We need to be brought back into that relationship through the work of Christ. Uh, so the corruption of sin, the separation from God extends to all people, and nothing within us, apart from God, by ourselves 
can repair that relationship. We need help. And so we, we look at ourselves, what is our nature? And as I said, hamartia, we've all uh, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we need to be brought back into that relationship by Jesus as well. So what God's righteousness, righteousness demanded, and so God demanded that we have his righteousness. And what God's righteousness demanded, his love has provided. Think of it that way. God demands a certain righteousness from us, but he has provided out of love the means to have that through Christ. And that happens within that loving relationship that is offered to all of us. It's, it's there for all of us. God loves you, and he's calling out to you to come, to receive Jesus, to love him within that relationship that he's provided. And he uses this fallen world and all the mess that it's in there. We look at this world, and people rail at God because of the evil in it. God actually uses that to draw us, to draw people to himself, to get our attention, to get our attention. Think of the story of the prodigal son, one of the greatest stories ever. What happens? The son goes off away from the father. I want to do what I want. I want to take my money, and I want to go out and live the way I want to live. That's the human race. And the father is God in the story, represents God. And what happens when the son loses all of his money and everything's he's at the very bottom of the barrel what happens it says he came to his senses exactly that's why god has cursed the creation so we'll come to our senses and wake up all this wrong with the world is actually a positive thing in that sense to get us to return to him through jesus christ so I wish I could tell you that we're, you're all good people and you got it made. Human race is doing great. There's no problems, really. They can't be fixed easily. But I can't tell you that. <laughs> it's just not true. There is no good news about the nature of man. The good news is about what God's done for you. In spite of who we are and the problems we have, God has acted to overcome it. That's the good news. Uh, Blaise Pascal, a great philosopher and theologian, said, Nothing jolts us more rudely than this doctrine of the nature of man. Yet, but for this truth about who we really are, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves. We don't know ourselves. We're wrong about what our needs are unless we understand this. And he went on to say, Grace is needed to turn a person into a saint. And he who doubts that does not know what a saint or a person is. Isn't that strong? Think about that. Grace is needed to turn a person into a saint. And the good news is that we have an awesome God who has done that. He has given us the, his grace so that we can be turned into a saint. So we have the boast-free gospel. Uh, our redemption, our deliverance is provided for us if we just step up and re-enter that relationship that we lost in the Garden of Eden. You know, uh, if you remember the old TV show, Get Smart, did you see that? 
You know, back in the it was in the back in the '60s. Remember that? And Maxwell Smart was the hero. It was during the time of all these guys like James Bond and Matt Helm and Napoleon Solo and Mission Impossible, right? And then there was Maxwell Smart. You know, he was incredibly confident, but he never got. He never won. And what was his great saying? Remember what he what he always said? He would just barely miss it. Just try to jump between deep buildings, and he would fall. He he go missed it by that much. <laughs> Remember that? Everything he did, you know, he would just barely fail, and he'd say missed it by that much, right? Well, that's funny, but that's not funny in real life. When you think about all the things that are really important, think about your drinking water. What if it was? Uh, clear and and uh, not contaminated 99% of the time, right? And you just missed it by that. It was only poisonous just by that much. How would that go with you? Would you be, <laughs> no, you'd be drinking bottled water. How about airplanes? They go, you know, 99 times out of 100, this plane lands safely. You, you wouldn't go with that. So I'm going to go on another airline then. How about prescriptions in your, when you go to, to, the, to get your prescriptions fulfilled? What if they said, you know, 99% of the time we get these things right. Sometimes there's arsenic in there. <laughs> Missed it by that much. <laughs> you wouldn't go with that either. And, of course, we wouldn't do that in regard to our eternal salvation ever, either. People say, you know, I'm really a good person. And I'm just that far away from being God, you know, being perfect. Well, in the spiritual realm, when you miss it by that much, you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the whole thing, as Romans 3.23 says. So some people you know, I, I know this, some people you know are wonderful, they're kind, they're generous. But again, Romans 3.23 says they miss it by that much. And God demands righteous, full righteousness, total perfection. And how can we not miss it by that much? Only in Christ. Christ has made it 100%. Let me uh, conclude with uh, what Sam Houston said when he was converted. I don't know if you've seen the story. I love it. You know, he was a wild, hard-drinking, partying guy, Sam Houston. Right? Late in his life, uh, I think back in the 1860s, late in his life, he was actually converted. And so he went to a preacher and said, I, you know, I want to get baptized. And they took him down to the river. And the preacher, you know, baptized him and he went underwater. And when he came back up, the preacher says, Sam, your sins have been washed away. And Sam said, God help the fish. <laughs> I feel the same way. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us in every way. Thank you, Lord, for providing the means and basis for us to be reunited, to be redeemed, to come back into that loving relationship with you that we are always meant to have and find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.